Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Um, I want to invite you this morning to turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. We've been in Ephesians chapter 2 for the past several weeks. Uh, We're going to move on to Ephesians chapter 4 today. Uh, You can't preach chapter 2 without then looking at chapter 4. You say, well, what's wrong with chapter 3? I've just never liked the number 3. So we're just going to skip over it and go to chapter 4. No, I'm just teasing. Chapter 3 kind of is a parenthetical, uh, but after we see the, uh, the position that we stand in in Christ, now we look at what we're going to do um, now that we know our position. Um, and so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in chapter, uh, in chapter 4. Um, as you're finding that, um, and as you're getting there, I just want to remind you too that some of you might like to follow along on your phones. If you have the version app uh, on your phone, the Bible app, you can just go to events and you can find our digital bulletin that is right there. It's got our fill-in guide. You can actually take uh, notes with that and save that to your version account. You can also, if you don't have that, that uh, app, you can go to our website and click on digital bulletin um, and it'll be there as well. I'll try, I will try to make sure we follow the outline. Sometimes I don't always do that uh, completely. Um, but if you are able this morning, uh, if you are here and you are able out of reverence for God's word, would you please stand with with me as we look at Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16 together, but I wanted to just jump in by reading verses 1 through 7 today. Again, the writer is Paul, and he says this, Therefore I, the prisoner of in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling that you have received, with all humility and with gentleness. Now in verse number 1, he says, walk worthy of the calling that you have received. Well, what is the calling? Well, that's what harkens back and echoes back to chapter 2 where we've spent the past couple of weeks. We stand redeemed and reconciled to God in Jesus Christ, and we stand reconciled with one another in Christ. So now that you know where you stand and you know how good you have it, here's what you need to do. It kind of reminds us of what the book of James says, right? To those who know to do good and don't do it, it is sin, right? And so here's what we need to do. With all humility, we walk worthy of the calling that we've received. With gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Now, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, on Father's Day, we bow in your presence and we thank you, Lord Jesus and God, that you are the perfect Father, that you love us with a love that is unmatched. You love us with a love that is unending and never dying. It can never, uh, we can never take too much advantage of it. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace. I thank you, Lord God, for the dads that we have within our church and for the dads that we had that made an impact upon our lives. And for many today who maybe um, this is a bittersweet day because dad is, uh, dad is no longer here or dad is distant, I pray, Father, that you would minister grace as the father of us all as we read in our text. I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would speak uh, through your word as we continue to look at our mission of reconciliation as a church, how we can engage the world and the culture around us with the gospel culture, with the truth that you are the one who unites us, and you do that from the inside out. And so we thank you today, and we ask that you will speak to us in God's precious and Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
<clears throat> I just want to open this morning by, uh, by asking, how many of you remember this show of emotion, this physical show of emotion called The Hug? Y'all remember The Hug? You know, it was back before COVID cooties started, you know, started to go around. Anybody, anybody huggers in here? You're a hugger. Not as many huggers in this service as there are in the, uh, in the second service. Hopefully, uh, people on the live stream will help us balance that quotient. Just about everybody in the first service was a hugger, and you're probably thinking, that's why we, the non-huggers, are in this service. Is that what it is? Uh, maybe that's what it is. So, um, but, you know, huggers are important to everything, right? They're important to our existence. Everybody needs a hug once in a while. Even if you're a non-hugger, it's nice to get a hug once in a while, right? No? Okay, all right, I get it. I wanted to show you this video this morning. This, this video is, is something we can be proud of. This comes out of Kentucky, it comes from Floyd County. This video is just a video that a mom showed uh, just on her Facebook account, and it went viral, and it actually became a national story. You can go ahead and show this. This is Bucky and, her co- and his cousin. Bucky and, 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 and his cousin are, are best of friends. They're like brother and sister more than cousins, and they were allowed to hug for the first time after three months. So watch this and see what happens. Look at that. That is a full-on hug right there, isn't it? Now come the tears. <laughs> now comes the awkward dance. You non-huggers should feel ashamed of yourselves today. Look at the power of a hug. For those of you who are on the live stream, you're not being able to see this video, but it is fantastic. Look it up. It says it's hugging with Bucky. Uh, it's fantastic. Do you see the power of a hug right there? It can tear down walls. It can, bring, it can bring grown boys to tears, right? Hugs have a language all their own, right? If you're a hugger, there's, a different, there's, there's different types of huggers too, all right? There's the, how, many of you, how many of you know a bear hugger? A bear hugger. You know, that when, they, when they hug you, man, they are wrapping you up. You are all in and you can't escape until they release their grip. Is that you? Are you a bear hugger? Anybody? Oh, I forgot. This is the non-hugging crowd, right? So you all, uh, you all, are, you all just need to go to some therapy or something like that, right? Um, then there's the tap hugger. We all know a tap hugger. You know, somebody will just kind of get in and just tap the shoulder a little bit and then break away real quick. If you're not a hugger, that's probably you. You're like, all right, I know I have to hug, so I'm just going to do this real quick. Get out real quick. Then there's the awkward side hugger. Now, this is how I was trained when I was a youth pastor. This is how you hug at church, and this is the way we still do Still do it at church a lot of times. Somebody comes to give you a hug and you just kind of do this. You're like, oh, that's nice. Good to see you. Jesus loves you. Um, and, and, then, and then move on. Then there's the people that are the chest bump huggers. Now, these are the, this is the hug that happens between bros, right? You get in, you bump real quick, you, you knock a T-bone steak out of their back, you know, like they're choking or something, and then you just move on because you secure your masculinity still. There's all kinds of different hugs. The sweetest hugs are from the people that you love the most, right? For instance, for Father's Day, all I really want all I really want is a hug from my kids. There's one of my daughters, I'm not going to say which one it is, but she will not hug. She's not a hugger. But the thank goodness that my other daughter, my favorite daughter, she makes up for the other one who doesn't hug, all right? So all I really want for Father's Day is a hug as they're bringing me my gifts, all right? So that's all I really want, all right? See, hugs are, I believe, are not just cute to watch on videos, but hugs make an impact, there's something about the language of an embrace. It sends a message and it makes a statement. How many of you, honestly, as you watch that video, you're kind of like, man, that is, that's powerful. It just made your day a little bit brighter because there is a language of embrace. It's a language of openness. As you open your arms and you invite someone in, what you're saying is, I am open. There's a language of vulnerability as well. I'm open to you drawing near to me. There's this language as well of acceptance. 
that says, I love you, I accept you, draw near to me. There's also a language of safety. Sometimes we hug people to make them feel safe, and that's what I hope with my family, with my daughters, that they know that as dad hugs them, they are safe there, that there is nothing that they need to fear there in dad's arms. It's also a language of comfort. Many of you have, have spent time comforting someone, holding them in your arms as they grieved over the loss of a loved one or they grieved over a broken heart. There's a language of comfort. There's also the language of unity, the statement that it makes of unity. Just like those, three, those two cousins coming back together after physical distance for so long, there's this language of coming back together. Hugs make a statement. Embrace gives a statement and sends a message to all of us. Even not just to the ones who are hugging, but to the ones who are viewing it as well and who see it, it sends a message too. There's a lot of negativity floating around on social media and floating around on the news and a lot of things. And we see that we live in a culture today that is at odds with one another, is on the verge, seems like sometimes feels like it's going to be ripped apart. But then there's some images, there's some videos, there's some things that you see that make us realize that there may still be hope for humanity yet. One of those was when there were some protests going on and there were protesters gathered around a group of police officers in riot gear. And this elderly African-American woman broke from that circle and walked over to one of those police officers and she just full-on hugged him and laid upon his shoulder and they both began crying. And that hug lasted for about two minutes. And everybody standing in around that circle was in tears at that point. Immediately that embrace, that show of unity, that show of acceptance and vulnerability began to break down some of those emotional walls. Why? Because there is a language in what we embrace. We send a message and we send a statement to the world in the things and in the people that we embrace. And I believe this, that as the church of Jesus Christ, we better be sending the message loud and clear that we embrace others, that we embrace those who Jesus died to save because there's healing when people embrace one another. So what are you saying, Pastor? Are you saying that all we need to do to fix the world's problems is just start hugging each other? No, I'm not saying that, because there's still COVID cooties, I get it. But you can't fix the world with a hug. You can do a lot of good, but I am saying this, that if we're gonna see the world change, we need to start embracing one another a little bit. That's what we have to do if we're gonna see the world change. And we, it's gonna take a spirit of embracing uh, others through a spirit that can, that, that can change this world. It's a spirit that is not of this world. It's a spirit that comes from God the Father, who was the one person, the one being, that had every reason to never embrace us and hold us at a distance after we sinned. And he said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Who said, I love you so much in your sin that I'm willing to send my sinless son to spread his arms wide on a cross, to die on a cross and shed his blood so that all who may come in, who all who want to enter can enter into the grace and the peace and the love and the family of God. So as his church, if we're, supposed to, if we're called to be the embassy of God and the embassy of heaven that, that depicts Jesus Christ in this world, then we have to have our arms open wide as well and learn to embrace others. But we're gonna, first of all, as a church, need to embrace the gospel truth that we need to understand that as a church, sometimes we don't embrace each other either. So last two Sundays, we've, been, we've come back, we've been in person, we've been looking at Ephesians chapter two. It gives us two things that we understand about reconciliation. We have to understand, first of all, that we're reconciled to God. In our sin, we were at odds with God and at enmity with God, and we are reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. And then, as we are reconciled to him, we are reconciled together in him. 
that we are reconciled one with another in Jesus Christ. Because the same Savior that saves Americans is the same Savior that saves people in Mexico or people in Africa. It's the same Savior. The same Savior that saves man is the same Savior that saves woman. The same Savior that saves old is the same Savior that saves young. He reconciled us to God, and he reconciles us to one another at the foot of the cross. So in other words, God took the first step to embrace us with his grace and his love by reconciling us, by bringing us into unity with one another by our common bond is that we are all humans, and all humans bear the same problem, that is sin. And all humans bear the same need, and that is to be drawn close to him. So this two-part message from chapter two kind of develops as we go into chapter four this morning. It kind of develops from a two-part message into this full series that we're basically just simply calling United, where we're examining the church's mission of reconciliation. And I've said it this past two weeks, but I'm going to say it again, and I'm going to say it again next week, and I'm going to say it again the next week, is that reconciliation, this word, reconciliation is not just a word, it's not just an idea, it's a command. Reconciliation, whether it be racial or whether it be otherwise, is a God-ordained, Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, gospel-driven, imperative function of the church. And it's not just a function that we look at in the buffet bar of modern American Christianity and say, yeah, I like that, I'll have some of that. I don't like this, I'll just leave it behind. You remember buffets before, before COVID? Right? Everybody liked going to buffets. I really liked going to buffets. You can tell. I'm a walking advertisement for Golden Corral, it looks like. The thing you like about going to buffets is I can get what I want and I can leave the stuff I don't want. And that's the way many of us approach our faith. I like some of the stuff in the Bible. I like some of the commands. I like some of the promises. But the other ones that I struggle with, I'm not going to really look at those too much. But the Bible says that we have to be, we have to be mindful of the full counsel of God. And this is part of the full counsel of God is that we must be reconciled to one another. It is imperative that the church of Jesus Christ lead the way in reconciling humanity to God and reconciling humanity to one another. So this morning, with the idea of a hug, with the idea of embracing, we're going to look at three things that the church must actively embrace if we're going to be that agency of reconciliation in a world that needs it desperately. So the first thing that we look at that we have to embrace is unity within the body of Christ. As the church of Jesus Christ reconciled to God and reconciled to one another, we have to openly and widely embrace unity within Christ's body. Look at verse number three again. Paul says this, make every effort. What that means in, in, in the original language is above all do this. Don't let it just be something you put on the calendar and say, we're going to table that discussion for later on. This is something that you actively must intentionally do every day. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now look closely at that text again. You notice something interesting about this text. It says to keep the unity. That's very important to understand. Why? Because you can only keep something that you already have, right? I don't go to the store and keep a new pair of shoes, I keep a pair of shoes I've already got. So what this is telling us is that unity is not something that we need to work towards. It's not something that we need to go out and manufacture or grow into. It's something that we are already given in Christ. That we are already united in Christ at the cross of Jesus Christ. That his blood has covered us all the same. And so what that's saying is if we as the church are not united, it doesn't mean that we just never got around to getting it. It means that we walked away from what we already had. 
That's an oh me statement right there, isn't it? We've walked away from what we already have. So what we have to do is not go out and find unity. What we have to do is not go out and create unity. What we need to do is keep unity. We need to make sure we preserve unity, and we need to make sure that we protect unity. That means that we have to be active and aware that anything that Satan tries to do to divide us is an element of sin, and it doesn't belong within his body. So how do I, what do I do to make every effort to keep that unity? Well, in verses 1 and 2, we see that Paul tells us we need to adopt some right attitudes. Look at verse 1 again. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you have received. So if you're going to call yourself a Christian, if you're going to walk as a child of God, walk worthy of it. And to walk worthy of it means I don't just say I'm a Christian, I act like one too. And so how do I act like it? Well, I adopt some Christ-like attitudes. And here it is in verse number two. Here comes a list. With all humility, your, your, your translation may say lowliness. With gentleness, it may say meekness. With patience or long-suffering and forbearance or bearing with one another in love. So these are the attitudes that we're told that we need to embrace. Humility, a lot of people think of, when they think of humility, you think of a person that's just real meek and mild and walks around with their, their head down, very rarely looks you in the eyes, is real self-deprecating. That's not humility. Humility is not thinking less of oneself. Humility is thinking of oneself less. It means that we put others' needs ahead of ours. That before I think about my predicament and my plight, I begin to think about others that are around me. This is one of the problems we're having within our society today. We'll never come together until we can start to hear and listen to the person on the other side. We'll never be able to do that. So humility means thinking less of my, or thinking of myself less. Then we look at gentleness. Gentleness is displayed in a spirit that is teachable and committed to the confident truth of God. It means that as I approach the word of God or as I approach a sermon or as I, as I engage with my church or with my brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm not just looking for a bunch of people and a, bunch of, and a system that's just, just going to continue to affirm my preconceived notions, but I'm looking for the word of God and a gospel that's going to challenge me to grow and challenge me to change and be formed in the image of Jesus Christ. That's what gentleness is. And then patience or long-suffering. And some of you are thinking, I got long-suffering I got long-suffering locked up, man. I attend Graceway Church. I've been listening to pastor's sermons for a long time, and I know long-suffering like the back of my hand. Long-suffering is not just necessarily talking about being patient to endure. It's patience that doesn't go and seek out one's own vengeance. It's patience that's revealed in a confidence of the sovereignty of God. It's revealed in the, in the confidence that God is in control and a respect for his authority. It's understanding that I may be called as an agent of God's justice, but I'll never be called to be an agent of God's vengeance because God's vengeance is his, he says in the word of God. You see, a lot of people, they live for confrontation. I'm not necessarily like that anymore. I used to be. I used to want to be an attorney and a politician. Not so much anymore. I don't really like confrontation a whole lot, but some of y'all, God love you, you're big spoons. All you do is stir the pot, man. That's all you do. That's, that's what makes life worth living for you. And you know what? God love your heart. But this is what it says. Be patient and be long-suffering. 
That means being cooperative to work with the body of Christ. To have commitment or to have forbearance. It's the fruit of, of suffering. We put up with one another with a commitment to one another. And we do this because we understand that every member is important. And we love one another too. If you want to do a little homework on love and what it really looks like, just go check out 1 Corinthians chapter 13 this week. And start studying that. That's what love looks like and that's how love operates. It's not really talking in 1 Corinthians 13. You hear it a lot at weddings, but it's not really talking about romantic love. It's talking about that brotherly love between people and church. So we have to affirm some right attitudes, or we have to observe some right attitudes, but then we also have to affirm a right understanding. See, because we have to show that we know where we stand in Christ. We know where we stand in God, and I think a lot of times we get saved and we think, hey man, I'm going to heaven, and that's about as far as it goes. But salvation and growth in Christ doesn't just compel us to only think about my eternal destination and my eternal good. As we become like Christ, we begin to think about the good of other people too. Because if Christ only cared about his eternal good, he'd have stayed in heaven. He didn't have to come to the cross, but he came for us. So we have to affirm a right understanding. And we live in a system and a culture that is void of understanding of the peace that we can have with God. And it can be really easy for followers of God to fall into the trap of letting sin just have its effect of dividing us further and further and further. So it's important as the church of Jesus Christ that we not only preach, but that we also believe and live according to the truth that's proclaimed in his word. And this is it, that sin separates, sin kills, sin divides, but sin is not unstoppable. Sin, we can be victors over sin in Jesus Christ. So verses four through six give us seven common denominators that we all share in Christ. No matter what things we may look around the room that divide us, what labels we may put on ourselves and what labels we may put on others, here's as the church what we need to remember. We have seven common things that unite us all. In verse number four, it says, there is one body. There is one spirit. You are called in one hope of your calling. There is one Lord. There is one faith, one baptism. There is one God and Father of all who is, get this, who is above all and through all, and he is in you all. So it talks about one body. That's speaking particularly of the church. Now, not Graceway Church particularly, but the church of Jesus Christ. Not just the Baptist church, but anyone who is born again by the blood of Jesus Christ. Y'all realize that Baptists aren't the only ones going to heaven, right? Y'all realize that? We are going first class, but you know, that's, that's, that's about all, you know. Baptists are not the only ones going to heaven. It's we trust in Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. There's a lot of Baptists that aren't going to go to heaven because they're trusting in some other stuff. There's a lot of Methodists that aren't going to go to heaven because they're trusting more in their baptism, their Baptistness or their Methodistness than they are trusting in their Savior. There's one body, there's one spirit, the Holy Spirit that lives in every believer and is alive in every congregation to strengthen us, to illuminate us, and to bind us together in a community. There's one hope. What's this hope? When I say I hope something, it means I hope that something goes good. I hope that I eat a good lunch today. But you don't know if it's going to happen. This is not the biblical hope. Biblical hope is I know what is coming. I've been promised what is coming, and that promise is just as secure to happen as though it's already happened. I'm confident of knowing. We have one hope, that one day Jesus is coming again. That all this mess that we live in is going to be set right according to his justice and our good. All of it's going to be set right. We have one Lord. Aren't you glad that there's not separate saviors for different people? That there's not a women's savior and a men's savior, a black savior and a white savior, an American savior and an international savior. There's one savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what brings us all in unity to one another. There's one faith. 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's not, one, there's not a different message that saves someone else on the other side of the world. It's the message of the gospel preached to us all, and it's never, it hasn't changed since it became existent, and it never will. There's one baptism. I'm not talking about the water baptism that we have. I know there's all kinds of different types of baptism, but I'm talking about the baptism of the Spirit that happens the moment we trust Christ. That's what, that's what births us into the family of God, that we're baptized into his family. We are plunged into his family, that we are encompassed by him and his identity, and that there's one God, and this is a beautiful example to us. When you think about our God, he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, right? Three distinct persons, three distinct roles, but one God. That's us as the church, right? We all come from different backgrounds, different walks of life, or at least we should, and as the church of Jesus Christ, we need to be this diverse mixture, melting pot of people with different giftedness and different personalities and different makeups and different experiences because we're better together. That's the, the role of the Trinity is to give us that example. One God in three persons covering everything together. So we have all of this unity that we need to embrace. Let's talk about what we need to embrace next. After unity, we need to embrace diversity. The church of Jesus Christ, we must embrace diversity. Why should we embrace diversity? Simply because diversity is the design of God. It's his idea and it's his design. Every one of us are created on purpose. That's a core fundamental aspect of our faith and the idea that we are created by God. We're not just the result of a cosmic accident. That we are created, handcrafted by God, which that means is that we are not accidents. I love what the evangelist David Ring says, God never says oops. Now when I look in the mirror and I'm, th I'm thinking, God, what were you thinking? You know, why wasn't I more handsome? Why ain't I looking better? You know, wh wh what do you think? This cannot be the way you intended. Now there's some things that when I look in the mirror, I gotta take on myself. Like God did not intend for me, and it wasn't his design that I eat two Big Macs before bed. That's on me. I didn't eat two Big Macs, I just ate two double cheeseburgers, that's it. But still, that's on me. But the abilities and the gifts and, the, and where you were born and the family you were born into, that's all part of God's design. And it's a diverse design. Our bodies are a diverse design. It's a beautiful picture of unity and diversity. My body has unity. My feet don't look like my hands. My legs don't look like my arms. My head doesn't look like my other parts. Yours don't either. And you know what? When it all works together in its difference, it's beautiful. Think about your hand. Just look at your hand for a minute. Okay, you didn't do it in the first, in the first service either. Could you look at your hand for a minute? Just look, I just want to see everybody hold their hands up in front of their face. Look at your hand. Think about this. You've got this beautiful... I can't really say it's beautiful, but anyway, you've got this beautiful part of your body called the hand, right? You've got four fingers that are pretty much alike, right? They're, they're different in their, in, in their length, but they're all pretty much alike. They've got fingernails. They're all pointed in the same direction. They've got three knuckles. You can bend them, and they move together. Some of them you can cross over one another. It's great. You can even do the live long and prosper sign. You can do the peace sign. You can do all three, all that stuff. You can do all of it, right? Now, over here on the side is this, is this strange little fellow that just couldn't get his act together. The thumb. Look at it. Everything else is pointed up. This guy's pointed over here, man. What's wrong with that? Yeah, I put it on my head. Now I'm a loser. You should get all that. All these things working together for good, but they can't get by without this guy. Completely different. Two knuckles. You know, looks really ugly on its own. Mine's got a hangnail on it. Ain't looking good. But you know what? These four guys can't do nothing without this one guy. Can't do half of anything without it. 
God has given us, every time you look at your hand, man, just remember, it's God's design that we have diversity. And it's his design and it's his plan that we have that. And here's the thing. When followers of Christ, when the church of Jesus Christ, when people who name the name of Jesus Christ reject or are not intentional about embracing the diversity that God has created and designed, we become guilty of rejecting God's design for diversity within the spiritual body of the church and within the body of humanity. It's not just a rejection of people, it's a rejection of the designer who designed people. I love what Roland Slade said, he's an African-American pastor who was just unanimously elected as the SBC Executive Committee President, and he said this, he said, I believe God loves diversity. He created us and we are all diverse. I think for us not to embrace diversity is saying to God that we've got a better idea than he does as his church. See, here's the truth. Sameness does not bring unity. Sameness will eventually bring disunity and it will always result in dysfunction, always. It may be more comfortable to be same, but it will never be more healthy. God makes us different, Dr. Adrian Rogers says, God makes us different that he might make us complete as one in him, and so therefore God has given us all different spiritual gifts. And that's what we look at as we come to verse number seven. Diversity is a gift from God. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive and he gave gifts to people. Look at that again. Grace was given to each one of us. If you mark in your Bible or you highlight, highlight that, each one. Grace was given to each one of us. All of us, despite our differences, despite our stories, despite our backgrounds, despite all of that, we all receive the same measure of God's grace because we all had the same need of God's grace. We all are sinners in need of a savior. We all had the same problem of sin and we all had the same need of grace. And that grace was given to all of us by one person, the only one, the only one who could save us. And it says, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Well, what is the measure of Christ's gift? How do you measure this gift of grace? You want to know the measure? Let me give you, let me give you an example and so how, how it applies pretty much to racial reconciliation and where we are in our culture today. I've often heard it said, and I've said it myself, and I've preached it myself, this statement that Jesus, God, is colorblind. Now, I think I understand the intent behind that statement because I know the intent in my heart when I said it. What I meant was that when it comes to sin and when it comes to our need, it doesn't matter if we're black or white or man or woman or boy or girl, we all have the same need, that we're all equal in God's eyes as far as our need of a savior. But here's the thing, God's not colorblind, neither is Jesus. Why? Because he created us with diversity. You can't tell me that he created us with diversity and then he just wants to, he just wants to like just completely blind himself from seeing the diversity that he created. Revelation tells us that there's going to be this big, diverse picture of all of us from every nation, tribe, and tongue gathered around the throne of God one day. We're going to celebrate and we're going to worship him together in one voice. Under the banner of Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the world. So I don't think God's colorblind. I think he sees it. And I think he has a design in it. I don't, think he's, I don't think he turns away from the differences that we have, but I do know that he looks beyond those things and he looks further than those things to what we all need. And until those needs are taken care of, we'll never be able to come together otherwise. And here's the thing. Our diversity is a gift to the church. Because if we as a church are to reach a world 
we have to show the world how we can come together in him for the common good. See, it's a testament to the power of the reconciliation of God that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and creed can be united under the banner of grace and welcomed into one family, into one kingdom. See, we're welcomed in by a God who put on Jewish olive-colored skin and was hanged on a Gentile Roman cross, and he died for the sins of Jew and Gentile alike. Red, yellow, black, white, brown, we were all precious in his sight. And while he hung on that cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Every one of us. That's the measure of the gift of Christ. God has given us a design of diversity, but he's also given us a diversity of gifts. It says in verse number eight that he took captives captive and he gave gifts to people. When you look at that, you think, when he took captives captive, what, the, what does that mean? See, during Jesus' earthly ministry, he lived among us. He suffered, he bled, he died, he was buried, and he rose again, and then he ascended into heaven. He is the conquering hero. To put it in good old Kentucky vernacular, he kicked Satan's rear end. And when he did that, he brought victory, not just to himself, but to us. And so someone reading this in the ancient world would immediately think about led captivity captive. Their minds would go to this military parades that would be held when a Roman general would conquer another, another group of people. They would conquer them, and then they would come back home, and they would have this huge parade. And the general would be riding on the chariot, and chained to the back of his chariot would be the generals and the high-ranking officers within the army that they just defeated. And then behind that chariot would be carts and, 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 and trailers and all the stuff that were holding gold and jewels and furniture and all the things that they had taken and plundered from the army that they just defeated. And they would bring all that treasure in, and they would spread it around to all the people, and everybody would celebrate the wealth that they got and the gifts that they received, and they would love this general for all that he did. That's the idea when we look at the cross. When we look at the cross, we look not, on, not as a symbol of death and destruction. We look at the cross as a symbol of our victory because it's on the cross that he defeated death. It's on the cross, and, and when he rose from the grave, that he defeated sin, and he defeated Satan. And as the victor, he leads captivity captive. He has led Satan captive and he now spreads his spiritual gifts to us as the church. And we use those gifts to glorify and honor him. And in verse number 11, he begins talking about the gifts. He gave himself, some of them he gave to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. So here Paul lists these leadership gifts that we have in the church, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us about the functional or the serving gifts that the church has. You see, we all have different components about us, and we've all in Christ have been given gifts. Some are, uh, have serving gifts, some have gifts of giving, some have gifts of, of helps and mercy, some have gifts of administration and teaching and shepherding. All of those gifts are different, but they work together, and every church needs some of everything in order to work properly. It's fingers and, and thumbs working together. See, again, sameness doesn't bring unity, it brings disunity, and it results in dysfunction. If we were all the same, think about if everybody had the gift of pastoring. Who's going to sit down while the pastor preaches? Think about if everybody had the gift of mercy showing or the gift of helps. Who's going to actually lead? We need a diversity within the body. And so God has given us this example through the giftedness that he gives us. And as we close out this morning, the last thing that we embrace after unity and after diversity is we have to embrace maturity in the body of Christ. Maturity, isn't that a word? 
Isn't that something that we're missing a lot of in our culture today? It's almost like we've all got this arrested development to us, don't we? We've trickled down into a society that lacks the ability to engage in constructive and healthy debate and exchange of ideas. What we do now is we just agree. We don't even agree to disagree. Somebody says something you don't like, you just block them, unfollow them, and shout them down as you're going. Sociologists call it the cancel culture. We're developing, and what's developing within our culture is this idea of just canceling out someone who says something that I disagree with. If someone says something that offends me or doesn't line up with my worldview, what I do is I'm just going to shout them down, I'm going to cut them off, and I'm going to try to cut them off from everybody else that I know. The reason for that is because somewhere along the way we began thinking that sheltering ourselves from anything that we disagree with is the healthiest way to live. But what that has done is created us with an arrested development. We've locked, we now lack the ability to critically think about something that challenges my worldview. Well, here's the thing. The cancel culture may grow in our culture today, but it cannot be the culture of the church because it's not the culture that the church was founded upon. If anyone has the right to operate under the cancel culture, isn't it God Almighty? We offended him through sin. We offended him through rebellion. We threw out other ideas saying, God, I need something else. And if anyone had the right to cancel us out and say, you know what, I'm done with you, I'm cutting you off, I'm blocking you, I'm unfollowing you, it was him, but he didn't do that. Instead of unfollowing us, he doubled down. He doubled down and we have the gospel message that God commended and demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were sinners, while we were worthy of being canceled, Christ died for us. Yet we live in a culture where that's what we do. We just cancel everybody. Cancel everybody out and live in this echo chamber that just continues to justify the way we think. What if God did that with us? He didn't. And so we are called as a church to grow in maturity to grow towards maturity, to begin to adopt the mind of Christ, to let Christ be formed in us. And very quickly, as we move to our conclusion, here's what it says. In verse number 13, we see, in 13 through 16, we see it explained what maturity looks like. See, maturity is not just being grown and getting gray hair and being able to talk high and mighty. See, what the world needs to see is not a pious church. I'm not talking about piety, I'm talking about maturity. And as we live in a culture that becomes less and less uh, culturally Christian, we have to understand that our message needs to be simple and clear and precise and repeated, that Jesus loves you and he gave himself for you. See, spiritual maturity is not someone sitting with, these, with theology degrees all over their wall and can argue with you the finer points of eschatology and soteriology and all of those things. There's a place for that. But in the normal everyday square, in the normal everyday life that we're living in, what people need to know, in a world where everybody seems to hate you and hate each other, there is one who loved you so much that he gave everything so he could have you. Maturity is what, is this what, this is what maturity looks like. In verse number 13, it's maturity that is less of us and more of Jesus. Like John the Baptist said, he must or I must in decrease, but he must increase. And verse number 13 says, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature that is measured by Christ's fullness. How do you measure maturity? We have a lot of different measurements for maturity and development. The way God measures our maturity in him is that when he looks at us, how much of his son does he see in the reflection? 
And that's what the world needs to see from us as a mature church. They don't need to see someone that can argue all the finer reports of theology. They need to see somebody who looks like Jesus, acts like Jesus, and displays his heart and his motions. That's the maturity of Christ being formed in us. It's, num- it's in verse number 14. It's a maturity that is grounded in truth. It says, it will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching or doctrine by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. James refers to it as being a double-minded man, being unstable in all his ways. It means that we're grounded in the truth of God's word. We know where we stand, redeemed and reconciled in him. And we know that that's where the world needs to come, redeemed and reconciled in him. The church has to stand on a firm foundation, confident of the gospel that we preach, confident that it is the gospel that will change hearts, confident that we have a message that has stood through the ages that combats culture's main problem, which is sin. A guy that I follow on Twitter, another pastor, Nathan Pyle, he said this, the church is not commissioned to win the culture war. What we're tempted to do is try to create a world around us that's just comfortable for us to live out our faith. But never in the Bible are we told that we're supposed to live in comfortable faith. In the Bible, we were told that we need to be aware that we'd be persecuted. People would look at us with, with evil eyes and they would say all manner of evil against us falsely. We'd be persecuted. We have to understand that we're not called to win the culture war and to be on top because that's empire way of thinking. We're commissioned to seek the peace and prosperity of our city and our world in which we are called to live as spiritual exiles. We are victorious in Christ, but we live today as exiles in a world that's not our home. So maturity is grounded in truth. Maturity in verse number 15 is expressed in love, but speaking that truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Jesus Christ. You can't become more like Christ without becoming more loving. We just can't. It's not possible. Maturity that builds up and unites is verse number 16. From him, the whole body is fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament. It promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. Church needs to be a place where people see people building up and uniting rather than tearing down and dividing. When most people look at the church today and you ask them, hey man, you go to church or what's your, what's your knowledge of the church? Most people will say, if they've, if they've got a good church, they go, I love my church. I'm loved. People love one another. We're all about the gospel. But there's a lot of people who have been in church that say, I don't want to go to church anymore because all we do is fight. We bicker over carpet color. We bicker over this. We bicker over that. Committees and politics. And what a lot of people will say is, I don't want to go to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites there. And now we live in a culture where we say, I don't want to go to church because I don't think they're going to like me because of the way I look. See, those are all the messages that people are getting. How do we combat that? We have to show that we're unified with one another and we're unified for the cause of the gospel. We have to be mature. We can't win a culture war. We have to win through the gospel, the same way that God's winning us through the gospel of Christ. We'll close with this illustration. In World War II, the Nazis bombed London and all of the countryside of England because they were hoping to be able to take over England, and they destroyed what was this, this beautiful old cathedral there in the countryside. After the war was over, some students and some people there in, the, in that area came together and they decided that they would restore and they would rebuild this cathedral and they did a really good job with it and they came to the remains of this statue that had been standing there of Jesus and it was depicted with his arms stretched wide and on, the, on there was inscribed this, this plate that says, come unto me, 
which was hearkening back to the words of Jesus in the book of Matthew. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And so they did a good job taking the pieces and finding the fragments and piecing them all back together to, to bring this, this statue back into place. But the statue had lost its arms and the hands had fallen off the statue as well. And they knew that they didn't have the artistic ability to be able to put the hands together. Any artist knows that the hands are the hardest things to completely capture in realism. And so they realized, we can't do this justice. It's going to be the hands of Christ. We can't do this justice. So they went ahead and left the statue standing, and they changed out the plate. Instead of saying, come unto me, the statue now said, God has no hands but ours. Isn't that an interesting thought? Jesus is back in heaven today, and he left us with a commission to be his hands and to be his feet. Jesus has no eyes, no ears, no mouth, no nose, no hands, no feet, but we are his hands and feet. And the question is, how good of a job are we doing at being his hands and feet? We can be his hands and feet and cause damage, or we can be his hands and feet and bring hope and healing. It's a matter of our posture, and it's a matter of our position. And when we are closed off, we're going to do damage. But when we are wide open and embrace his gospel and embrace one another, we'll see healing take place. So the question this morning is twofold. If you're here this morning and you have never come into the embrace of Jesus Christ, if you don't know today, if you died, that you would go to heaven, or if you're watching this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, run into his embrace. His arms are wide open saying, come to me and find rest. It is only through him. And to be honest, some of you, you're wore out because you've been trying to work your way there. You've been trying to figure it all out. You've been trying to learn enough. All we must know is I'm lost and Jesus is my Savior. Come to him. Be born again. We pray this prayer and we ask Jesus to say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. And I put my faith and trust in you to take me to heaven tonight. If you're not saved today, let today be the day. If you're here this morning, you say, I'm saved, but my posture and my position has been more like this. I just am not a spiritual hugger and I'm not going to do it. Let God soften that heart and give you his posture of arms wide open to embrace unity, to embrace diversity, to embrace maturity, and to embrace others with the gospel. As we come to the conclusion of this week's message, we pray that it has ministered to you and challenged you from the Word of God. We would love to hear from you. If you would like to connect with us, you can go to www.gracewaylegs.org. Click on Contact Us, and we would love to have a discussion with you about your faith. Thank you. We'll talk to you again next week.